Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. The history books don't always get it right, see Christopher Columbus. But what if a small stone found just outside of Quincy completely changes the history books, well, again? The Ellington Stone, a mystery over 300 years in the making, coming up next. Now, here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Back here on Wild Quincy. Travis, have you been to any good concerts since our last episode? I've not. I was in a questionable bowling alley in Freeport, Illinois, but I don't recall any music playing. Maybe maybe some like maybe some like karaoke or something. No, there was a good song uh, that I was I was quizzed upon the the the, the singer and I could not think of it, but uh, that was pretty cool. <laughs> okay, exciting. I know. Can you top that amazing story, Chris? Uh, no, I can't. Not at all. Uh, uh, not tough. at all. So, if you haven't checked out, make sure to check our latest episode with Doc Holiday. It was a lot of fun talking with him. And also, we talked to him for a good almost an hour on Patreon. So, if you're not a Patreon member, check that out as well. You learn a lot about uh, about Doc and learn uh, about what his favorite pizza place is in Quincy and all those good questions. So, you can always check that out. Again, check that out at Patreon.com. But, uh, Travis, not a whole lot to talk about. About except except we got something coming up in the works yeah we teased it uh i think it was i can't remember if it was on a patreon episode or an actual episode but we want to break out on facebook and do a little communication with everybody and go live what are we going to be chatting about chris we've in our research have come across some really cool maps we've talked about them before they're called the sanborn maps and what the Sanborn maps are is they're maps uh, that were used for fire insurance and things like that back in the day. There's two maps. There's like an 1882 or 83 map and then an 1890-ish map. It's really neat to take a look at because it shows the progression of like 10 or 15 year span of Quincy. And a lot of stuff that's on there, obviously that's still there today, but a lot of stuff that's on there that's not there today. So we want to dig into that because it's so cool. So we'll have that up and we'll uh, we'll talk about it. We'll ask answer some questions, maybe find out some new questions we need yeah. to find out. And uh, we're also hoping that the wonders of technology work where we'll have a live call-in oh my happen gosh. as well. It's, it's like yeah. a, a very own talk show. Wow. Exactly. So uh, be on the lookout for that. We're going to do that as a, a little Halloween. Or Halloween. <laughs> I'm still yeah. in October. It's coming up a little sooner than that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little Christmas, uh, New Year's kind of activity. And the reason we're doing that is because we need a break. Uh, it's been a, a, a run. So we are going to take a we bye week. We got gifts to wrap, people. We, Come on. Exactly. Gifts. Uh, so we're going to take a bye week coming up, uh, take a little bit of a break. We'll have our Patreon episode between Christmas and New Year's, but then we'll take a week off and then we'll come back uh, for the next episode, uh, the second week in January. So uh, give us a little bit of time to get caught up on things. And we have a lot of exciting things coming up the rest of the year. Uh, we'll talk about what episode's coming up a little bit, but also, uh, you know, season three is just around the corner. Can you Doesn't believe that? Doesn't seem possible. It's, we've just been zapping right here through season two. And on that note, Travis, when between this episode and our next episode, do you know what it is? What time of year it is? You do not. I'll answer it for you. <laughs> it's our anniversary. It's our anniversary, Chris. Of course it is. <laughs> I was just about to say that and wasn't that deer in the headlights you saw. <laughs> There's a lot of wife comments I could probably throw in there, but I'll just leave that alone. Our right wives now. are amazing, and if you're a wife, you're amazing too. And, nice. And yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we our one-year anniversary coming up. We started a, a year ago in January and uh, excited and proud to have all you guys that have been listening. We have, uh, Travis, you just told me this before we started. Uh, we got people that are listening, not just in the Quincy area. Uh, Carrie was one that we did yeah. uh, a few weeks ago. She's from Texas, you, uh, some up in northern Illinois from the sounds of it. We, we're, we're, we're becoming national. People are being captivated who never even lived in Quincy, strangely enough. Uh, yeah, so that's... That's shocking, but so welcome. And uh, we'd love to we'd love to hear from you guys if you want to give us a shout at the uh, voice comment line at 612-666-9453 as I stretch to see the number. 
<laughs> you think after a year we would have that down, but we still don't. Nope, have it down. I do not remember numbers. Just say six 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 wild, and that's all you need. That's true. That's true. Or you could also, of course, give us a shout at our email address. That's wildquincy at gmail Welcome any any feedback, any criticisms. Keep us on the up and up over here. Also, any ideas for shows? Uh, obviously, right. for Patreon member, we give those first dibs to those guys. But if you have a thought that you want to pass along to us, you can as well. But again, uh, recapping, remember just to keep an eye out for our Facebook Live event coming up sometime in the next few weeks right uh, on our Facebook page. Yeah, so be, you be sure you're following on Facebook and Twitter as well. We'll get, uh, we'll get an update as soon as we kind of get that penned in instead of penciled on the calendar. And we look forward to chatting with everyone live. Have you have you pushed the trigger on the Instagram yet, Travis? I have not. Okay, I have Thinking no good about excuse. It though, aren't you? Oh, definitely. In my mind, it's a done deal. It's just <laughs> a matter of doing it. So we do put a lot of pictures out, so it'd be easy to yeah, do it Instagram. Is. So. It is coming soon to Instagram. We, yeah, and then we can say we'll have that on the stories. Oh yeah, like they always say in all the other podcasts. Uh, yeah, so check that out. We'll have that coming up. We'll let you know when that happens. But Travis, I think it's time for a question of the day. Bring it on. Bring it on. You're not going to screw with me again this week, are you? No, I made sure I actually put the correct the answer right in this answer. one. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we're good there. I, I actually have a little star next to it, so I know that's oh, the right one. Live and learn. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But I almost did the whole thing of like, let me give him like which four are wrong and which one. Yeah, but I didn't. So, uh, so here we go. Here's the question of the day: The first airline to service Baldwin Field was in 1947. What was the name of the first airline? Let me give you some choices here in mm. alphabetical order. You got Braniff, Mid-Continent, Ozark, or TWA. So that is your question. Again, the first airline to service Baldwin Field was in 1947. What was the name of the first airline? Was it Braniff, Mid-Continent, Ozark, or TWA? Mm, that's going to be a tricky one. We'll see what I come up with. We'll have that answer coming up for you at the end of this episode as well. I'll give a preview, a quick preview of a history from our forefathers, knowledge and wisdom of our forefathers that coming up a little bit later on as well. But Travis, we're going to dig into some unexplained in this episode. And uh, we're not doing the digging, but some digging was done 100 years ago. Some might argue a little too much digging after the fact, as we'll, we'll talk about. But you're right, Chris. <laughs> we're going to be chatting about the Ellington Stone coming up next. <laughs> Here's what you missed on the latest After Hours episode of Wild Quincy. Get this. Now, I'm going to apologize now for the visual. They had to bring a tractor out and tie this rope to my hands to pull me out of the mud pit. I came out of the mud pit. My pants did not. Yeah. Oh, no. So there were about 10,000 shocked Nebraskans who witnessed something that no person should ever see. And I can prove with science that since 1985, the population has decreased in North Platte, Nebraska every year as a result of that. Our After Hours episodes are available exclusively for Patreon members by going to patreon.com slash wildquincy. For just a couple dollars a month, not only will you double the amount of Wild Quincy episodes at your fingertips, but you'll also be supporting our efforts as we continue to dive into the wild and crazy history of our favorite town. Also, as a Patreon member, you can take part in our live events and Patreon-only outings, as well as having access to our regular episodes two days before they are released to the public. It's easy. Just head to patreon.com slash wildquincy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wildquincy and become a wild thing today. Back here on Wild Quincy and this week we are talking about none other than the Ellington Stone. And, and Travis, I think what we did here is we kind of did usually what we do actually is either one of one of us usually takes the the lead in the research role and it sounds like we both kind of did a little research on this episode. Yeah, it, I'd say that's definitely the case. The Ellington Stone is one of those stories that I've heard about before, but I never retained a lot of the information about it. So I feel like I had to go back to the well a little bit just to get myself up to speed. What did you find on your investigative journey? Well, unlike you, this is really my first endeavor into talking about the Ellington Stone and looking and researching, and I didn't know a lot. And the first thing that hit me before we even get into the background of this is that 
I didn't know until the research that where I work is literally like a half a mile away from where this is at or where this was found. Uh, I always thought when they say Ellington Township, I was thinking, oh, it's somewhere, you know, north, like far north of town. But in all reality, it's right on the border yeah. of the of the city town, the city limits. They almost called it the Quincy Stone, I believe. But Ellington yeah. Stone had a better ring to it, if memory serves. So we're going to give you a little bit of details. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different than our normal episode because, uh, you know, it's yeah, there's research, but there's a lot more speculation yeah, uh, definitely. with this. And so, yeah. We're going to kind of give you a little bit of feel of both. So a little bit of opinion, a little bit of uh, fact, and a little bit of history, uh, just all that combined together for this episode. But Travis, I want to start out with uh, reading this uh, little section of this book that I found. It's a book that's called River of Forgotten Days. It's by a guy named Daniel Spur. Okay. So I'm just going to read this to you. And this, I think this gives you a good outline of exactly what this is all about. So here we go. One day many years ago, sometime around the turn of the century, nobody is quite sure just what year it was, Sam Cook walked down the slope behind his farm. The house sat on the highest point of land in Ellington Township, Adams County, Illinois. The view was westward of over the fields towards the Mississippi. In the gully below ran the clear spring waters of Cedar Creek, and on the knoll across the creek was an ancient Indian campsite. Long before the advent of foundries and breweries that would constitute the waterfront economy of nearby Quincy, Illinois, long before the arrival of Father Francis Steck, who taught at the college there and whose research would lead him to conclude that the Marquette did not accompany Joliet down the Mississippi, long before the first steamboat and long before the whites ventured down the great river in the birch bark canoes whose use they had adopted indian hunted on this site cooked and made shelter locals found a shallow fire pit lined with rock slabs and filled with charcoal once in a while cook found other signs It was the arrowheads he especially liked, and they were most readily spotted following a rain, such as had been the previous night. This day he would find something unlike anything he had ever seen before. Cook almost missed it. It was lying as it was under water, its image blurred by the falls and froth flowing over. He turned, stooped, and picked up a piece of limestone that measured about 8 inches wide, 11 inches long, and and 1.5 inches thick. An adhesive mixture of mud and sand obscured parts of the numerals on its surface. He studied the strange markings, then hurried up the hill home. Several carpenters and painters were working on the farmhouse, and Cook called to them. One of the men took a screwdriver and cleaned the mud from the deep etchings. Oops. Yeah. What they saw were the letters IHS, with the cross standing atop the bar of the H, and the numbers 1671. In the center of the stone was a large half-fallen cross, and in one corner a small hole. Once it was cleaned, he took it inside, and there it remained for the next 50 years a conversational piece. So that's kind of the background of how it was first found. And as you heard, just a little bit of details. Again, two inches thick limestone slab, 12 inches tall, 8 inches wide. The letters are IHS, and the letters IHS are Greek abbreviation for Jesus, and then below it's a small cross and this cross is kind of weird because it's tilted i would say almost at like a 60 degree angle uh from yeah uh, you know if you looked at it from the right angle of the rock and it's actually right below ihs which ihs is not flat it's kind of circled like a kind of like a a moon shape kind of an arch yeah 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 Mm -hmm. and then you have the cross underneath so travis what's your thoughts so far i'm gonna throw this out just because i don't know if what you've read or what i've read is correct but i think you mentioned sam cook in the name is the name of the farm but i have ed cook so just no disrespect to any cook legacies out there it's it's one of one or either. <laughs> Let me jump in there real quick with that. So I went down many many rabbit holes in this yes. research. Uh, I went down French explorers. I went down uh, Marquette and uh, Joliet, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But I went down more importantly, old Adams County atlases. Excellent, excellent. And sure enough, there is an S Cook that okay. has two properties. Right next to where this stone was found. So some one of the gentlemen in the Cook family 
Was, yeah, it's we'll, S-A we'll give Cook it. is the official. You know how Ed's like a nickname Alice. sometimes, so you never know. Yeah. <laughs> but to, <laughs> yeah. to your question, Chris, uh, uh, yeah, the the IHS, I think, you know, I, I believe that's a Jesuit a specific marking, if memory serves. And uh, and the, the date is 1671. And why why is this significant, Chris? Yeah, so here's why this is significant. You would think, okay, some guy made a stone, big deal. He decided he was bored and etched something into a stone. Problem with this scenario is, is that the first known explorers that explored the Mississippi River were Marquette and Joliet in 1673. Mm. So who did this is the question. Yes, two okay. years before... Uh, those two is sailed down, actually up, uh, down the Mississippi. That's right. I think we need to pause and just kind of reiterate that a little bit because a lot of people are going to hear this and not really listening and be like, "So what? Who right. cares?" This, if this is authenticated, if it could be authenticated, this would completely rewrite the history books when it came to early exploration of our in the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. It would be a major historical thing. And that kind of takes us back into the discovery and what happened next. So we have this stone discovered on the Cook Farms. What what happened? What's next in the story? So the limestone slab, if you will, was in the possession of Sam Cook for 50 years or so. I can't find an exact date of when he found it. In this book, it mentions like early 1900s. I came across a Quincy Herald Wig article that said 1950. So that was kind of strange. I had it, yeah, before the 50s, in between in the early 1900s or 10s, 20s, something like that. It makes the most sense, again, going off of what I was looking at atlases, is that Sam Cook, uh, the atlas that I found was a 19, 1919 atlas, and it had Sam Cook in those places. Right. So I'm going to assume that we're somewhere in those first 20 years. Uh, anyway, so at some point in time, and here's, um, we apologize, as you know, I believe it was... Uh, Pinkham is our last <laughs> example of this. So I'm going to go ahead and apologize up front if I butcher a name. And, and you would think, actually, Travis, a name Ketters with an O in it, you would think I would be more into making sure I got last names correct because everybody butchers my last name. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I'm probably not going to get this right. The gentleman's name that we're talking about is a guy by the name of Leroy John Thompson Pollich. Did we get it? Uh, we'll go with that. We'll probably stumble over that name. Yes. It's, it's a lot of consonants doing some some dancing next to each other there at the end. <laughs> so Pollux. 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 Is that Pollux. how we're doing it? Okay. Pollux. It'll, okay. Yeah. That, go for the essence here, guys. I know. We're horrible. Yeah. But yeah. No disrespect. So, he was very fascinated. Uh, we're just going to call... Uh, I don't know. Did he go by... Is this Leroy was, was what he went by? Well, I, 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 Lee, he, he ran a sporting goods store uh, mm-hmm. called Lee's Sports. Okay. And kind of in the, the calf town area of Quincy for a long time. And, uh, and when he closed up shop due to the competing internet markets, he kind of made the old storefront and kind of his, his research central in a way and spent what 48 plus years just Mm -hmm. trying to dig into this stone and its history and how could you potentially validate that i mean did some yeoman's work trying to you know tie up some loose ends yeah everybody and by the way i just double checked and all the newspaper articles that i were able to come across they all mention him as lee so we'll just refer to him as lee from now on to make it easier uh so no no disrespect to the family but I did come across some interesting things because he got, as you mentioned, Travis, really involved. And he he spent a good portion of his life trying to solve this mystery. And as we mentioned, uh, Joliet and Marquette are the first ones that are credited in 1673. Even in this news or in that article, I just or that uh, book I just I right. read you guys. It says that there's proof that Marquette and Joliet did not travel together, which that is an issue of its own. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I haven't heard that specifically, but I think maybe that makes sense if uh, if you think about the time and maybe there was legs of the trip where they would split up or something. But uh, regardless, that's a, that's a whole And we'll get into that in a second. Story. I also found some other research that also showed that at that time, neither in 1671, neither of them were able to be 
doing any exploring at that time. Oh, frame interesting. So, okay. yeah, I did come across some research on that. Uh, anyway, uh, Lee had some thoughts of his own, as we were kind of mentioning, and he believed that the stone offered evidence that a French explorer by the name of Robert LaSalle, LaSalle? LaSalle. 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 Let's go with LaSalle. He may have been the one that actually made this in 1671. History books would have to be rewritten, as like Travis said, if, if this theory was true. But most historical accounts say that the Upper Mississippi was discovered in 1673 by Marquette and Joliet. Lee and the guy that I was just talking about, Daniel Spur, who wrote that book, they became really close friends. And that's why this, this was included in Spur's book, is because they really researched a lot of this uh, information. And, and and Lee had a lot of information Spur said after the fact, uh, and and so they actually met many times talking about it. But they found some interesting thoughts, and, and most of this came from Lee's research. Was finding out that Lasalle, 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 Lasalle. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows where he was at from nineteen or like sixteen sixty eight to like seventy two. Right. They did extensive journal keeping. Obviously, if you're going out to new lands, you're you're doing extensive journaling of your findings, probably sketches of forest, floral and fauna. And there's a gap in those journals to which Chris just indicated that fits this time span of 1671 perfectly. So, you know, as, as Chris, I'm just reiterating what Chris said, a lot of speculation, if it wasn't Marquette and Joliet, who could it possibly be? And as Chris said, this LaSalle keep kept on coming to the forefront of, of Pollock's and other of Lee's other uh, and his cohorts who he would talk to. Some people were starkly against it, denying it. And some people could kind of buy into that story, not only buy into it, but help add a little bit of color that maybe makes it a little bit more feasible. So let's get into LaSalle a little bit. The funny thing about this, when I was, I always build outlines to things I want to talk about during the episode, Travis. And when I first built this section, I put why LaSalle doesn't work. But then I started doing research and started really like looking into it. I'm like, wait a minute, that actually does kind of work. So then I had to change the the title of this this section of the outline. Uh, But anyway, let me give you a little details on LaSalle. He was born in 1643. He died in 1687. Was that natural causes, Chris? Ooh, I no, it was not. It was not. That's he, right. He was murdered. Yes, it was a mutinous murder from his yes. crew. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, what the general overview of him? He was a 17th century French explorer and fur trader in North America. He explored the Great Lakes region of the United States and Canada, the Mississippi River, and the Gulf of Mexico. He's best known for an early 1682 expedition in which he canoed the lower Mississippi River from the mouth of the Illinois River to the Gulf of Mexico. There, on April 9th of 1682, he claimed the Mississippi River Basin for France and after uh, giving it the name. That that really paints a picture of, of LaSalle there in being cocky enough to claim the entire area for i believe for france right and there's some pretty cool maps actually if you go on even even wikipedia there's some really cool maps about that time period of who what countries claimed rights to what areas of the united states um which is really cool. i want to throw in a little color from what i've read on LaSalle. he was kind of a man's man drove hard was i mean he lived and breathed exploration to the point of ruin he was the guy who was out there pushing his crew beyond their limits until that fateful day when they had had enough. I believe in Texas, the what was now Texas area, where there was a mutinous uh, <laughs> rebellion and they ended up killing him. But jump back. I mean, jump rewind and get you back on the story here, Chris. Yeah, sure. Oh, no, you're, you're totally fine. Uh, I just some other stuff here about LaSalle. Uh, he's often credited for being the first European to travel, traverse the Ohio River and sometimes the Mississippi as well as it's now been established that Joliet and Marquette preceded, preceded him on the Mississippi in their journey of 1673 and six, uh, 1674. Travis, I sat on this word for a long time. And this is coming again. I'm going to go. It's Wikipedia. Yeah. Take it as you will. Tell me, explain to me in, in a fourth grade level here, because I couldn't get it. <laughs> I'm going to read this to you again. It has now been established that Joliet and Marquette preceded him on the Mississippi in their journey. What does that mean? The, to me, that means that they were the first ones to traverse it. But 
it's so vague based off everything else you hear. Was it the complete Mississippi? Was it portions of the Mississippi yeah. River? That's where it starts getting real fuzzy. It does say here the existing historical evidence does not indicate that LaSalle ever reached the Ohio Allegheny Valley. Uh, a couple of things, and this is where um, I have some. I thought I had some issues with him, but then I, I had to double back. He came to what was referred to back in that time period as New France, which was just the North American continent, what they were claiming. And, and where he landed was about the St. Lawrence uh, River area, Quebec area up in okay. Canada. And that's where he came in. But it was in 1666 that 66. he came in. Okay. Uh, and that he sailed to the New France. He left St. Lawrence River area in 1669 for his first expedition down the Ohio River. Okay. Okay. And that was really it. That's the only last thing we have leading up to 71. Then we jump for him in 79, 1679 that is. And it says here, with a group of 40, LaSalle and another person headed south from Fort Conti in Niagara. They canoed up St. Joseph, followed the portage at present day South Bend, Indiana. They crossed the Kankakee River and followed it to the Illinois River on January 1680, reached an area that was near the current city of Peoria, Illinois, in order to help local Peoria tribe defend themselves against the Iraqi. LaSalle and his group built a stockade. I think that was, was an IROQ how do you spell that? Is that the Iroquois? Iroquois. What did I say? Iroquois. Iraqi? Iraqi, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, they I mean, good. props to them for coming all the way from the Middle East. That's uh, yeah, no. Skills. So, so the reason I wanted to go to with that is that that was 1679 when they're showing that he crossed over and got into the Illinois area. But that would have been eight years after this stone yeah. was, was made. So they he jumps from the Ohio River... Uh, what, what do you have? So that? they kind of st- he started up in, and I would assume it says St. Joseph, which I think that's getting up there. That's still in your. My guess is he came down St. Lawrence, got into uh, whichever probably Lake Erie, but then I think I think and guys, prove me or tell me I'm wrong. I think St. Joseph's in Indiana, uh, then got to South Bend, Indiana. Then they walked over to Kankakee River, which is over by you know up by Chicago and Kankakee. This is sixty. Uh, 1679. 79. Okay. This would have been eight years after our date we're looking at. Then from there, he went down the Illinois and then over to Peoria. So, I don't know. Uh, uh, It's hard to to feel that out of like, okay, well, did he already know this path or, you know, again, we don't have any information about his time period there. So uh, you can make the, make the same argument that Lee's making that maybe he already knows this path and he knows this area. Well, I think to that point, Chris, uh, everything I've seen and I, I haven't done as deep of a dive as you have on this, but a lot of times those early explorations, uh, used like a Native American guides who, I mean, (laughs) this is a conversation for later, but they knew all the routes. They know the shortcuts. They -hmm. knew how to get from point A to point B. So in this, this will play into the story later, I think. Um, But yeah, I mean, they, they know the lay of the land and I'm guessing that that was always being, they were accompanied by uh, a local guide, so to speak, would be my thoughts. So I want to continue this. Uh, so this isn't it for the story of about 1679. The group later traveled along the Illinois River, arrived at the Mississippi River in February of 1682. From that location, they built canoes, and then the exploration reached an area is now Memphis, Tennessee, where LaSalle built another fort. It was named uh, Fort Prudhomme. Uh, it was the first structure built by the French in Tennessee, by the way. Uh, in 1682, the expedition reached the Gulf of Mexico. There, La Salle named the Mississippi River, as we mentioned, uh, the Basin La Louisiane, uh, in honor of Louis. It was very. Are you, are you French? That was Knight. very authentic. Uh, did it sound that way? I just nah, made it up. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, it was probably bad. So, but anyway, you see a path that he had, and again, now we're going down the pathway of Marquette and uh, and Joliet. Is that they were coming down in 1673. I don't know. Is there anything we're missing before I go? The next step I'm going to go to is talking about the stone itself and the location, unless you had something else. No, let's go down that road. I can circle okay. back on, on this, I think. Yeah, the there's a lot yeah. I want to circle back yeah. on, too. But yeah. uh, So back in 2012, Lee's family, after he passed away, which, uh, by the way, he passed away uh, in 2008. 
Right. And uh, by the way, when I did a search uh, for him, his his obituary came up, and one of the things in the obituary it says, since 1956, he worked to solve the mystery of the Ellington Stone. So his actual obituary, to tell you how dedicated this yes. man was, his actual obituary talked about it, which I thought was really impressive. Lee was a bachelor. Uh, you know, had a lot of time in his retirement to focus on things. I think model train building was another big thing as well. So this this guy had very you know, deep interest and had a lot of time to dedicate to that and did. So let's follow the stone. So after Lee's passing, the family and maybe it was even Lee's decision, they handed the stone off to Quincy Museum. So from 2008 to 2012, Quincy Museum had possession of it. It's in their permanent uh, museum display. However, in 2012, the, uh, there was some discussion, and finally it was decided that the University of Illinois was going to take possession of it to do some research and do some anal, you know, analyzing and some data, carbon dating and all that, and try to see if they could figure out where anything get any information from from a um, what do you want to say from a scientific perspective right right so they did this and a few months and this is reported in the Quincy Herald Wake a few months later another report comes out uh, another article comes out in the Herald Wake saying that the University of Illinois did not find anything the only thing that they could prove that it is actually the same limestone that is found here in the quincy area so it does prove that this wasn't placed somewhere right it, it didn't come from someplace else it actually is a stone from the quincy area which that's good but it could also not be good that it's from the quincy. I mean, it could go either way however the bigger problem is that we've mentioned this at the very beginning is that when they cleaned it up for the first time, yeah. they used very abrasive things. And it was suggested that possibly a screwdriver or some sort of pick was used to clean out the dirt that was in the rock itself or in the uh, where the markings were at. And that scratched it up significantly to where when the University of Illinois tried to do this forensic analysis, they couldn't get any details because it was ruined by that. So uh thing to remember here, if you find something that's interesting, don't scratch it up. <laughs> yeah, or lick somebody it. else or lick, lick it. it. You don't know where that's been. <laughs> don't do that either. Yeah. So uh so yeah, unfortunately they weren't able to really put anything in there. That's heartbreaking. It's so find, heartbreaking. Yeah. Exactly. That that alone could have absolutely validated this. Just to wrap things up from the this timeline of what has happened, the stone is back at Quincy Museum. It is on display. I would highly recommend going checking it out as you can uh, see the stone in its full entirety. The one thing we didn't talk about is the location. Yes, of where this let's, is at. Let's, let's chat about that a little bit. That's important. I had to go kind of backtrack. So finally I found out they talked about Cedar Creek. For, obviously, let's backtrack more. Ellington Township is the first, first section, okay? But then they go into more detail like it was found on Cedar Creek. So luckily in today's world, we have this thing called Google Maps. And so I jumped on Google Maps, started finally after I found Cedar Creek, and I was like, holy crap, that's partially in Quincy. Absolutely. Um, it goes like through the veterans home if i'm not yeah, mistaken yeah it's i could if i had a good arm i may be able to throw a rock yeah. into it right now <laughs> cedar creek goes uh it's on the north side it heads uh, across 12th 24th all the way out to way out there on 36th street uh where cooks lane and 36th street meet according to uh google maps it kind of ends right in that area however you know, when i was looking at the old atlases it actually went a lot further than that it's actually kind of backed it's dried up a little bit uh in in its years but it used to be a lot longer and i also found another evidence travis that it used to be a lot deeper than it was yeah we're gonna talk about that because that is significant well let's talk about that now okay well you know you were you were giving us i want to circle back to LaSalle because mm-hmm. none nothing that you said necessarily put LaSalle in quincy right it kind of gave a high-level overview. Again, we have a chunk of time. 1671 falls within that. But it's obvious that he spent a lot of time marauding around this area based off the dates that you could see. Well, uh, Lee had lots of theories, talked to a lot of people in, in Chicago and different educational institutions. And it was Illinois River was a hot spot 
uh, for LaSalle and his explorations. And Cedar Creek, if you look on a map, there is a creek that runs to the west from the Illinois River called McKee Creek. And if you look at where McKee Creek going, you know, from from east to west meets up with Cedar Creek going west to east, there's only about a maybe a I, I don't it's a it's a small amount of land where if you were in a canoe party, you could take Illinois River, catch McKee Creek, follow McKee Creek and you might have to board, you know, the canoe. I forget exactly what the term is. Take him out of the water for a short distance, and this would have been a path that the Native American guides knew well. And where McKee Creek ends is almost where Cedar Creek begins. And to your point, Chris, those were deeper. Those could facilitate a canoe. I'd even wager that they might have been connected back in that time. I mean, it's three hundred years ago, so it's completely possible that the party could have taken a shortcut cut through the state from McKee Creek to Cedar Creek. That is a pretty big smoking gun, and that's one of the biggest smoking guns that Lee had when he kind of got together with all the institutions. Because if you follow that path, that is pretty damn convenient. To get Ironically, it. Travis, I, this is something yeah. I, I kept hearing the McKee Creek reference yeah. in my research. I never really processed where that was at, but I'm actually on Google Maps looking at it right now. And it does start the Illinois River. And if you actually follow it, it really in, it ends up going all the way out. It's it's the actually the the creek that goes right along Salem Springs. Yeah. So it's out that way. And then if you keep following it, it according to Google Maps in this day and age, it ends by Columbus. Uh, right. Columbus, Illinois. So you're you're in the wheelhouse, and again, as we did mention, is that we did see that um, Cedar Creek was longer in the 1900s. Yeah. So add 200 years, it, it hell, it might have ended up connecting the two. In all honesty, if we look, which that brings up again, I'm going to put my scientific perspective into this. Yeah, we probably could do that with terrain and elevation profiles today, and right. maybe even Google Earth, and be able to see if that would support the idea of a consistent creek going from connecting those two together just based off what i read it seems like the two have always been separate but whether they were closer or not mm-hmm. it could be a good debate but even with that being the fact that's a short distance for a canoe party to have to you know take their canoes out and relocate yeah but again i think it goes back to the the native american guides that they employed on their their searches and remember from the research from even what the Sam Cook said back in the day and what he was doing was he was searching for arrowheads because they knew this yeah. section was used and that was a campsite for Indians and for the Native Americans in the time so it would be an ideal and that was I do want to backtrack I do think that's what bothered me at first about this scenario is that I was like why is he if the let's say it's Lasaw yeah. why is he two miles away from the Mississippi River. It didn't make any sense to me, but if a couple of things could work if it was a campsite. And then secondly, there was a reference I came across that talked about this area. And if you kind of look at what it looks like today, it actually kind of still holds true, is that it's kind of a hole to where it's it's covered on all sides by hills. And so yeah. that would protect you from the wind in the wintertime. Oh, and sure. that's may have been why that the Native Americans chose that location is that, for the that warmth. high ground that high ground exactly where you know the this farm was at it was you know the ideal location not only for that reason but i think if you talk defensive you know it's the high ground and know, i do yeah. want to get specific for people that live in the quincy area if you're going out 36th street and you're uh, going across to some railroad tracks, and then you real quick take a left turn on Cook's Lane. When you take a left turn on Cook's Lane and go down the hill, pretty sure, uh, first of all, uh, right there with the railroad tracks and the and on actually it's on the other side of the railroad tracks on the right hand side is one of Sam Cook's properties. The other property of Sam Cook's is actually down the hill 
And right when you're getting ready, when he crossed the bridge, that Cedar Creek and his property was right there on the left side, or I guess we would want to say the west side of Cedar Creek. So his property did touch Cedar Creek back then. Yeah, that, that I just wanted to get that point in there on those two creeks on the possible convergence yeah. point that would have been probably a well-known shortcut or what rite of passage to major waterways. Here's another process, another path I went down. And, and this is another rabbit hole I went down was was looking at other French explorers and holy cow guys there is a ton of French explorers right, in the 17th right. century uh, there's some other possibilities but nobody really correlated with a date that I really felt like it could be so there's that possibility but honestly as much research as Lee put into all this it's hard to not say if you're going to pinpoint a name for somebody as a possibility you would have to go with Lassau as as that possibility however Travis there's another flip to the coin here that we got to talk about yeah and that's the possibility that it's a forgery right what's your thoughts on that Boy, it, it seems like it seems like an easy out at face value, but there's if if you were going to do a forgery, and this is a lot what a lot of people thought in the past too, in, in conversations about is this a fake? Wouldn't you want to have something meat on that bone of a forgery? Would you want to have the name on there? Because what's the point of just having a date and a Jesuit symbol? What's the the hijinks there? You're not giving any credit to anyone. What's the intent of doing a forgery of that nature? And then putting it in an obscure location where someone happened to stumble around it looking for arrowheads. I just don't see where's the juice in that squeeze. It would be... Well, okay, I'll answer that question first. I I think the best... And uh, I am not suggesting people do this because it really mess up people 300 years in the future. But (laughs) the best scenario of to make a forgery or make something that is not real is to make it so obscure and so strange that it doesn't make sense of why you would do it. And maybe I'm wording that differently. Maybe I should word that differently. It needs to be, I think if you're going to make something like that, you got to make it vague. You cannot be, if you give too many details, it's like when a person lies. If if they're giving you a lot of details, then they're probably lying. You don't want to yeah, give a lot of what's details. What's the purpose? What, are, what is a forger accomplishing by doing this? It might have been worth a laugh or something. You know, the, the, people do that. Possibly, uh, yeah. But here's the thing I want to go, the other aspect I want to go with this is that how many people in the 1900s, let's just say if it was a forgery and it, it they, they made it in 1900, okay? How many people know that the Greek symbol for Jesus is IHS? Do you think a lot of people would? A lot uh, of, I mean, if you're, if you're a Jesuit or, or you're a very religious person, I could see that. But I don't know. No, it, I, you know, I think. And let me add this real quick. How many people in 1900 to 1920 know that Marquette and Joliet came down the Mississippi River in 1673? That's true. And that was another thing that I've heard is if you were trying to do a forgery of something that you're trying to make it appear to be Marquette and Joliet, why wouldn't you use the right year? Why right. would you go two years earlier? Exactly. But yeah. I think the the bigger thing that bugs me, and maybe you're going to get into this, Chris, is, well, let's just reference all the other stones that we found that have been inscribed by these explorers. Wait, there's a problem with that. <laughs> there aren't any. There's This is the only one that's been discovered anyways. That can go both ways. It's unique, but then it's unique because... Yeah. And what I mean by that is that, well, if if they've never done this before, why did they just why did LaSalle decide to do this in Quincy in 1671? Exactly. And that's what's so mind numbing and the debate rages on is because the math doesn't add up. There's not enough integers on the table to make an equation. You you could go down the road though that uh, there may be stones that are out there like that, but they've done That's so true. much. They did so much exploring back then that it could be spread anywhere in the Eastern United States. Well, not just that, but there was such 
from what I understand, exhaustive journaling and record keeping of, and if there's something significant enough to to spend however long it takes to carve out, you know, something in rock, it's probably going to have a footnote. Well, if you're bored and it's winter and you got nothing better to do, well, if you're bored in the winter in this time period, your your concern is not dying, dying, not, <laughs> not carving in a stone. I Very think. good point, but very good point. It, it's it it just it. I don't know what to think anymore. I did have one other thought that kept yeah. crossing my mind, and I don't think it's I don't think it's legit. But what is the possibility? Well, two possibilities. What well, first of all, the more more above the surface one is what is the possibility that it is Marquette or Joliet that did it? But the other part of the deeper part of this is, did people know? And this sounds very ignorant of me. Did people know what year it was in the 1600s? No, I had that thought too. I had that thought. I mean, too. they they had they had journals and stuff, so I would assume they did. No, it's a fair question. I think we we take a lot for granted in this modern era that we can look at our phone and know the temperature and all this other stuff. <laughs> if mm-hmm. you're if you're that disconnected, I God, I have a hard time believing you don't know the year. But it, I think yeah. it's it's possible. I mean, maybe this is the first typo. <laughs> it's, the first, it's the first etched typo in Whoops. stone. That's a big oopsie. You can't backspace that one. <laughs> Yeah. There's another possibility here because what do they say about history? It's the it's the the one who write the books or the I mean this the could winners be someone write the else. books. Exactly. Yeah. This could be some undocumented person there like you said there were how just countless French and I mean anybody European stands a chance at being in the in the Jesuit, you know, faith or and I believe that's a offshoot of the Catholic religion. I'm don't quote me on that. The thing that that I keep coming back to is if you look at the stone, if you go back, you cut out all the speculation, you take away the LaSalle, you take away the Marquette and Joliet, this is essentially the size of a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper. And this does not look like a complete artifact. Ooh, okay. This looks like this is a fragment because this, this is not clean edges. This is not, you know, polished. This has chunks missing. This has little circles etched into it. This looks like it was part of a bigger something else mm. and that we're just seeing one little chunk of it. Mm. And we also didn't even talk about why is there just a random hole in it, too? There, it looks like about a half inch hole, maybe. Well, few people know this and don't bother looking it up, but it's uh, n- notoriously the Native Americans love bling. So, what it's they wore, like an early flavor flavor, like flavor flavor with the <laughs> they wore a they wore a, a 30 pound stone yes. around their chest. Yeah, it was. I like, mean, it was, check it was, out my bling, boy. Maybe it was something so insignificant, and it, it would, wouldn't have been Native Americans having a Jesuit symbol, but maybe. <laughs> Maybe this was like a fur trader's like flexing on another fur trader, like, oh, that your next stone's only twenty pounds. Oh, check this out, man. <laughs> so, mean, and here's the thing you can think of too. It, this is a, I mean, this this whole thing with Lasalle in in 1671 could blow things out of the water. But what really could blow things out of the water if the if the Native Americans were putting Jesuit stuff on <laughs> stones that would be his the historical in very significant <laughs> yeah that would be something i i, that I would be something i gotta say where i where i come down on this is i think that it was authentically there in 1671 but i don't think there's enough information to to say it was LaSalle to say it was any major explorer there's just not enough meat on that bone and even if the the artifact hadn't been contaminated by efforts to you know make it more visible when it was first discovered, then you could at least have the validation of the time. But as far as a hoax, I just don't get why you would do that without more of a motive. But like you said, some people just want to watch the world burn. So I, I don't know. What, where do you come down at that? I'm kind of with you on that. I, you did you did bring up a point I did want to bring that I don't think I really emphasized enough. Uh, LaSalle, the reason why the LaSalle and the Jesuit thing is such so prevalent is because he was, and I'm trying to find it exactly, but he was an actual, he, here it is, required to reject his father's legacy when he joined the Jesuits. So he was a very devout religious person right so that leans into it the other thing i was wanting to go back on real quick uh, had to do with that time frame 
and, and I talked about going down the rabbit hole of a lot of French explorers. There was a lot of French explorers in that time frame. And to your point, Travis, the winners make the history books. Yeah. And not only that, but also I think the more prominent and prevalent people make the history books as well. And so, and I'm trying to think of a good example. Well, Christopher Columbus is a great example, actually. Yeah, and we all know how well that's aged. Exactly. Yeah. But here, it could be no different, is that maybe, and I know, not to put any discredit to Joliet Marquette, but maybe there was another person before that, but they were the money makers. They were the prominent people. They were the ones that got to write the history. And if I can just turn that last statement up to 11, the whole idea of the white man discovering a nation that has been well populated <laughs> by the Native American, you know, tribes for God, God knows how long. Mm-hmm. There's still a land bridge. Seems a little like cult, the cancer culture to even go down this debate to some extent. This is just the first white man who discovered. And it. on that note, Travis, we will save that for our Patreon. <laughs> there you go. There we there go. go. Well, uh, that is a look at the unexplained Ellington Stone. We'll be back with more after this on Wild Quick. The trick to saving is treating yourself to these high bee specials. Hoopstone Pizza, two for $6. Ruffles Potato Chip, $1.88. Nabisco Premium Crackers, 88 cents. And USDA Choice Beef Chuck, seven bone roast, $1.27 a pound. Get low prices all day, every day. Shop high bee. And low prices. Throwback ad from the nineties. Yeah, that was that was oh so good. That that song echoes in my head. There's iterations of it now, but it never beats the original. Helpful smile in every aisle. Hi V. I, I have to point this out. First of all, it, hopefully that brought back some memories to most of you because you don't hear that at the beginning of the Hi V commercials anymore. Of the shop Hi V. I'm not gonna sing it. Travis does the singing. Uh, <laughs> But the other thing I want to make a point of is the prices, Travis. Oh, the crackers, the crackers, okay, eighty-eight cents. That's eh, yeah. you can get away with that. But the meat, the meat. So oh, Chris, the roast was meat. a dollar. You can't beat that a meat. Dollar, you, can't you can't beat, beat that meat. meat. That is a good meat price, Chris. <laughs> yeah, dollar twenty-seven a pound. How insane! I I mean, I was paid like I paid like nineteen dollars a pound for a steak. Oh wow! Yeah, I paid my right kidney for a sirloin. Also, I want to point out, I'm not too sure, and I'm pretty positive you cannot get two tombstone pizzas for six dollars anymore. Oh, I don't know. You can. They're doing some crazy stuff with pizza science these days. You can get some good deals on pizza. <laughs> pizza like science. ten for a buck. Like, what do you even? Is that even? I don't know what, what I'm eating, but it's as as it's delicious. I'm coming yeah. back, Chris. So that is our throwback ad. I want to throw this out real quick is that we will have another throwback ad on our Facebook page coming up. Ooh, bonus. Because it's so hilarious, <laughs> but it doesn't really transition audio-wise. Actually, it kind of does, but we thought it might be a little too vulgar for, for our show. Uh, it's it's like an 80s commercial, and it's for Johnson Boats. What could possibly go wrong with Johnson Boats, Chris? Exactly. We're on the river. Maybe uh, you had a Johnson boat. I'm not even going to say the funny Let's line. Let imagination run vulgar. wild, and you'll probably be right on point. Head to our Facebook page. Check that out. Uh, we'll have that up for you coming up in a while. We'll also throw this Hive ad on there as well. And uh, Travis, I think it's time. And now it's time for Words of Wisdom from Adams County. Bo knows voiceover. Just in case you know, you know, let's throw back to another throwback there. Thank you, Bo. Yeah. Thank you, Bo. God, it's still so good. Uh, so, yes, it is time to take a look at the wisdom and knowledge from the forefathers and foremothers of Adams. Is foremothers a word? Of it is now. Adams County. I made it. It happens. It's from the book from uh, Harry Hyatt, uh, and it is has a ton. And we want to thank everybody. That's still a post on there, by the way. If you haven't picked a number, go onto our Facebook page, pick a number. Uh, we had a ton of listeners, our favorite listeners, uh, giving us some of those numbers. Travis, this week, just because I caught it by accident, I don't know if uh, 
Ben or Tina Powell saw what the previous post was and decided to uh, do a little uh, price is right kind of thing oh, did here. Did they one up them? Uh, actually, they one downed them. Uh, so I'm guessing maybe Jennifer uh, Morrow was the one that one upped them because we're going to do two numbers because they're right next to each other and the numbers are 9,999. In 10,000. Ooh, I hope that doesn't come back and haunt him in the showcase showdown. <laughs> well, well, I mean, honestly, if you're going to go that route, Ben and Tina, you're, you're, you got to get exactly the right number. Uh, so we're going to go into a section. This section is death warnings. Oh, gosh. Getting dark. Getting dark. And so we're going to flip to the back Please be here locust. for the Please first be locust. one. Have you looked at this? No, but it's always locust. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll read 9,999 for you first. Are you ready? I am so ready. Three years ago, one Saturday night, I was driving out 8th Street with a friend, and all the lights on the car went out at 8th and Chestnut. We tried every way to get them started, and they would not light. My niece lives right along there, so this friend said, I will get your niece to sit with you until I go get a battery. And when he was coming out of her yard, the lights started to come on. He said, look, the lights are all on. We drove home and did not have any more trouble for a year with the lights. The lights going off like they did was a token of my brother's death Sunday morning. I got a call to come home that my brother took sick Saturday night and he died Sunday morning at 3 o'clock. He took sick just when those lights went out. I found out when I went home. Wow, that's a pretty good story. Yeah, I, I, that took a turn I wasn't one expecting. One could argue they maybe jump into conclusions, but you know, I'm not that person. I, I, I know we were done with Wild October. I did have a story. I knew somebody in Quincy that one of their family members died, and the family portrait that was hanging on the wall fell the exact moment Ooh, that they died. See, that's that's creepier. That's a lot creepier. And this is kind of like along those stories too, with all the lights going out. So that was nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine. Oh, bon- bonus, bonus coming. There's a bonus. Coming bonus. Number ten thousand. Thanks to uh, Jennifer Shulian Morrow and uh, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Uh, we went to school together by the way, um, out of John Wood, I believe. Uh, And you mentioned Locust, Travis. Yes. You have not seen this. No. 10,000 is this. Kill a locust and you will die soon. Words of wisdom from Adams County. It's always locust. Yes. (laughs) Locust for the win. Anytime there's, there's a portents of ominous things. Always go with Locust, baby. So Always. that is a look at... Uh, if this were Price is Right, that's where that wheel would have stopped at the uh, $1 thing. You know, where, where you yeah. get the... And the Locust would have died. Yeah. 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 We wouldn't spade or neutered them or nothing. <laughs> All right, Travis, we need to wrap things up, but it's time to answer that infamous question of the day. QOTD, bring it on. You got an acronym for it? Nice. Yeah, it's quick. Here's the question. The first airline to service Baldwin Field was in 1947. What was the name of the first airline? Was it Braniff, Midcontinent, Ozark, or TWA? Travis, your thoughts. God, I don't know. I don't know how old. I I would think TWA, but I don't know if they were around that early. I want to say TWA. Final Final answer. answer. All right. Final answer. You are... Incorrect. Oh, but you're I close. Do. You are okay. close. Okay. TWA started in 1948. Oh, I was that close. You were a year off. The first yeah. one was Mid Continent in 1948. Yeah, that wouldn't have been my second guess, anyways. So it wasn't meant to be there. Interestingly enough, uh, the other ones I mentioned were also there as well. Uh, Braniff was right after Mid Continent. They left in 1959. And then another company, Ozark, actually had a very long run in the Quincy uh, Baldwin Field. Name sounded familiar. 1950 to 1982. So 32 years of service in the Quincy area for Ozark. Why are we talking about airlines? Because we are going to uh, visit uh, something that happened with one of the airlines back in the day, and it was in 1996. Uh, We have talked about it in the past, and it's time to dive deep into the unfortunate accident that happened with the airline crashes 
1996 at Baldwin Airport. We'll be doing that with a special guest coming up after our bye week, so we'll be looking for that the second week in January, and we will have all the details for that coming out a little bit later on. But Travis, before we wrap things up, are we missing anything? No, it was a, it was a fun episode. I think uh, we, we, we tossed it up and knocked it down, and we want to hear what you think about the Ellington Stone. Let us know on the social media channels, email, phone number. We've said it enough. You should know where to find it. WildQuincy.com will get you everywhere. Let us know. Ellington Stone. Real? Hoax? Who did it? Who, who put that knife to the stone and documented a mystery that still continues to this day? For Travis Hoffman, I'm Chris Ketters. You've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft, and thanks for listening to Wild Quincy. Wild Quincy.